a spectacular suicide or a murder. Baffling last chapter to mystery writers alike, said the LA Times. Novelist public death creates Chicago mystery, wrote the New York Times on December 1996. And Patrick Rogers for People magazine said, Eugene Izzy has created another riddle in his own death. No matter who was responsible, there was an exit scripted with a grim tabloid flourish. On Saturday morning, December the 7th, a man in downtown Chicago looked up to see the body of crime novelist Eugene Guy Izzy dangling from a noose hung out of his office window 14 floors above Michigan Avenue. Within minutes, police arrived at the office to find a scene littered with tantalising clues. The six-foot, burly writer of hard-boiled cops and gangster stories, a native of the tough city streets of Chicago, was now dead, hanging by the neck outside his office window. A noose had been tied four times around his neck and the other end of the rope tied to a desk inside the office. He was wearing a bulletproof vest, brass knuckles and had a can of mace-like spray in his person. His pockets were stuffed with $481 in cash. On the floor of his office lay a loaded but unfired thirty-eight caliber pistol. In his office there were a series of handwritten notes and some computer discs. It looked like a suicide or murder, but his door was locked from the inside. 43-year-old Eugene Gaizzi was born and bred in the blue-collar Chicago neighbourhood of Hedgewish. His father, Eugene Gino Izzy, was a small-time gangster peddling drugs to running a gambling den for the mob. In 1965, Gino was jailed for armed robbery. At the age of 16, his son Eugene Guy dropped out of school and joined the army, where he served for two years. After leaving the army, he returned to the neighbourhood and took a job as a steel worker. He married a local girl called Teresa who worked as a waitress and they had two sons. The Washington Post said that Izzy once wrote, My earliest childhood memories are of my father beating my mother. On more than one occasion, he sent her to the hospital. His wild drunken brutality and the terror it instilled is never far from my mind. Unfortunately, Izzy emulated his father's worst trait. He said, I would come home and give her a beating, he means his wife, wherever she caused me a problem. The last time I hit her, a parting shot to the stomach, thrown as I passed her on the way to the bedroom to pass out after a night of drinking. It was around nine in the morning. Later, he woke up to find his wife gone, along with his young sons. He did reconcile with his wife a few months later, and in fact it was she who encouraged him to write. He began writing late into the night after getting home from work, and when the kids had been put to bed. Weekends too. His influences were that noir writers like Raymond Chandler, Mickey Spillane and the dark and gritty stories of Elmore Leonard. Izzy was unhappy and brooding as an intermittent steel worker, taking work when he could, but relieved when he couldn't, for it gave him more time to write, and he longed to be published. He was an intense man and he created characters based on his hometown and upbringing. Said the Chicago Tribune, his villains ranged from sexual sickos and mobsters to Lincoln Park yuppies. People magazine quoted Chicago author Bill Brashler calling him an angry guy. That's what gave him power and force in his writings, he said. And they talked to Dean Ubik, whose family still owns the South Shore Inn, a Hedgewish bar Izzy frequented, who said he was a cocky guy who would come in on Monday mornings and have a black eye from his weekend escapades. Guy would write about having to carry an ice pick when he walked around, said Ubik, adding, maybe the world was threatening to him. To me, it was a safe place. 
The Chicago Tribune said Izzy filled his books with the characters he supposedly knew from his neighbourhood. Hitmen, psycho killers and vengeful cops. He changed his phone number more often than some people changed the oil in their car. Izzy wanted the dark realism of life in his stories and he actually once lived homeless on the streets for several weeks to understand what it was like before he incorporated this into one of his books. He wrote seven books and all seven were turned down by publishers until finally the take was published by St Martin's Press in 1988, followed swiftly by more books including Bad Guys, The Prowlers and King of the Hustlers. Universal Pictures bought the rights to the take and then to Bad Guys. At last, he had found the success he'd been craving for so long. Stuart Appleborn, a Bantam Books executive, said to the Tribune, he needed success, recognition and esteem, the way other people need oxygen. Izzy was en route to becoming the next Elmore Leonard, and he earned enough from his books to buy a house and move his family from the inner city of Chicago to the nicer suburb of Park Forest. His future looked bright, although other, newer crime writers were hot on his heels and already looked set to quite possibly eclipse him. Then, there were the unfortunate circumstances surrounding his new release, Tribal Secrets, a semi-autobiographical story of a reformed ex-alcoholic crime writer who makes it big and moves out of the city to Forest Park. He and his publishers, Bantam Books, were full of excitement about his upcoming release. His publishers heavily hyped it up. They sent him to the annual American Booksellers Convention, where he was courted by all the top figures in publishing. But there was a big problem. According to the Tribune, the publisher gave away 10,000 copies of the book to ignite a publicity buzz. The buzz was loud. The book was bad. Bantam cancelled the tour, the ads, the talk shows. The publication editions, given to everyone who mattered in the book world, received dreadful reviews, said the Washington Post while Esquire magazine says he was told that he would be going on a 30-city tour with appearances on talk shows when Tribal Secrets came out in September. It never happened, thanks to those 10,000 free copies. Through the summer, the comments were coming back from booksellers and they were dreadful. Advanced reviews were disastrous. Tribal Secrets was sloppily written, they said. His publishers, now in a panic, cancelled everything and discounted his new book to half price. Izzy, in response, was said to have been heartbroken and furious with his publisher, and he walked away, severing his relationship with them. That same year, the IRS told him he owed almost $25,000 in unpaid income tax. His publishers, meanwhile, told him they wanted the advance back that they'd given him to write more books. Izzy had to sell his house in Forest Park and move back to the streets of Chicago to pay his tax bill, and unable to refund the book advance to his publishers, he was forced into agreeing to their terms that he would not write anything for three years. This, of course, was a problem for Izzy. At first, he couldn't find a new publisher willing to sign him, until Simon & Schuster agreed to take him on, under the condition that Izzy write under the pseudonym Nick Gitano. Back living in the city now, his new office in a dingy warehouse district of Wabash Avenue was a grim, steam-heated cubbyhole, and it was during this time that his friends said his secretiveness, his wariness of strangers, began to curdle into pathologies. At his home in Forest Park, he'd had a guard dog and a security system. The mailbox in his apartment building bore no name. He kept changing his unlisted phone numbers and the mailboxes. 
Time passed, and as Izzy's three-year exile came to an end, his prospects for a comeback, after five years out of print, came flooding back with the offer of a three-book deal with Avon Books, with the first book due the following year. Izzy readily accepted the offer and began writing his new book. What no one knew, though, was that at the same time, he was also writing another book too, the transcripts of which would be found on computer disks in his office after he was found hanging outside of it, and the relevance of which will soon be revealed. Izzy finished writing book one in December shortly before he died and received a proof copy of it from his publisher. His publisher told Esquire he was so excited he couldn't wait to see his name in print again. It was incredibly optimistic. We talked over the outline for his next novel. A week later, his body was being battered by the city winds of Chicago as it hung by the neck 14 floors up. After police went to put his body in through the window, along with his bulletproof vest, knuckle dusters, can of mace, they noticed handwritten transcripts on his desk of what appeared to be threats to his life. Associated Press reported, Since Izzy's body was discovered Saturday, acquaintances have come forward to say he had been concerned for his life and had received at least one threat from a militia group. Said Bob Rice, a friend and former homicide detective, he let me listen to the voicemail. A woman said he'd been found guilty and he'd be dead by hanging by the end of the year. She said, you can't hide from us. God have mercy on your soul. What had he done? Rice said Izzy had infiltrated an Indiana militia group, but he said he didn't know any details. While Esquire wrote, half a dozen people had heard the halting female voice say that Izzy's infiltration of the Indiana militia had been discovered. He'd been tried by a kangaroo court and sentenced to die by a flaming rope. Three years earlier, his wife Teresa had said to the Chicago reader, he's atoned for every sin in everybody's mind but his own. He has trouble forgiving himself. Did she mean for his wife beating? Or were there other things too? Had he crossed the line somehow in his research on the streets? Had he stepped into criminality to prove his allegiance perhaps? Or was it just the militia after him? There was also what Esquire claimed to be another note. They said he pinned an obscene threatening letter to his office wall. It came, he said, from a skinhead he'd interviewed for a new book he was working on, Bulletin from the Streets. It was signed cryptically, Romantic Violence. Izzy claimed he had sent a copy of the manuscript to the skinhead. Well, DCN News writes that in the weeks before Izzy's death, he'd apparently taken the threat seriously and moved his wife and two sons out of their home to a safe location, while Izzy had taken to sleeping in his office with a gun nearby. Perhaps Izzy's paranoia was not misplaced. Almost no one ever saw Izzy. His 14th floor neighbours rarely ran into him. His office was situated in a corner, and from the recessed window of his office, Izzy had a grand view of the city. Well, it was a doctor in an office in a different building who happened to glance up out of the window while consulting with a patient, who happened to spot his body hanging outside the window. When the police arrived, they found his office door locked from the inside. Once they'd gained access and retrieved his body, some reports say by pulling his body back in through the office window, while other reports say he was brought inside through the window of the travel agency just one floor below. It looked like suicide or murder, but how could a murderer have got in? His body was hanging from a rope that was wrapped around a leg of his office table. 
The other end of the rope had been wrapped around his neck four times. Murder dressed up as suicide. Suicide dressed up as murder. Reports varied in details over the months. The Tribune said, Here was a man terrified of heights whose body was discovered dangling from the window of what was once the tallest building in Chicago. While a later article by John Fountaine of the Washington Post said, He'd beaten the heights by going down to Marseille, Illinois on Sundays and leaping out of airplanes with the skydivers. He could stand on the top floor of the Sears Towers and not get sick at all, conditioning himself, preparing himself, he speculates, to summon the nerve to kill himself. Wouldn't the loaded gun inside his office have been easier? Or was it an elaborately staged murder? Or an elaborately staged suicide to look like a murder? He had enemies, as was evident, and certainly, it seems, Izzy was security conscious. Was the gun more for his own protection? Izzy wrote, five years earlier, On more than one occasion, I've been heavily damaged physically by people who knew their business. My wife sees me as paranoid because I'm normally cautious. I know how things work and how easily they can break down. To write the scenes in his books and to craft his vivid characters, Izzy pounded the streets and even lived on them at times, and his research even took him to therapy sessions with sex abusers and inside militia groups. Did a member of one of these groups kill him? Although, where were the signs of a struggle, of violence, blood? There were none. The conclusion of the county cook coroner, Dr Mitra Kelakar, was that Izzy had done this to himself. And remarkably, she was aided in this determination by a startling piece of evidence. On one of the computer disks found inside Izzy's sparse office was a story he'd been working on in which the central character winds up dead, hanging out of the window by the neck from a rope that had been tied around the leg of a desk. With all the same accoutrements of a bulletproof vest, mace, knuckle dusters and a gun. The story, she said, closely mimics how Izzy died. In the secret story as he had written, the central character is a writer who is attacked in his office by militiamen. They noose him and throw him out of the window. However, unlike in real life, instead of dying, the character manages to hoist himself back up from outside the window, re-enters the office, picks up his gun and shoots the men dead. Said the coroner, the entire manuscript closely mimics his own life and that of his manuscript character. The way the rope was tied around his neck four times, all of that is described in the manuscript. It indicates that his death was premeditated and his gun was found on the floor just like in the manuscript. The manuscript was like a suicide note, she said. It was like a script of his own suicide. There were other clues that Izzy had, for whatever reason, done this to himself. His face and body bore scrapes and bruising, which could have looked like he'd been attacked and had struggled with an assailant. But according to Dr. Kalikar, these marks and injuries were reflective of the trauma caused by his body being buffeted against the wall as it hung there overnight. Someone did, though, including the first responders. Had Izzy done this accidentally? Had he been testing the scene he'd written to see if it was realistic? Had he accidentally hung himself while trying out this scene? After all, he'd taken extreme measures before in his endeavours for realism. Not every crime writer would go undercover with extremists or attend sex offender classes, or mingle so closely with gangsters. Had he slipped outside the window? 
had a daring but reckless desire to test out his scene led to a freak accident. Surely no normal person would ever consider doing such a thing as to sling a noose around their neck and climb out of a 14-storey window, especially a person terrified of heights. And yet another report said he jumped from planes. And as he wasn't an average person, he was extreme, passionate, driven. Tampa Bay Times wrote, As implausible as it sounds, one key fact may support that theory. Izzy's neck wasn't broken by the fall. It may suggest that he lowered himself gently down the rope with the idea of hoisting himself back up, officials said. And adding an old quote from Izzy, Taking risks, they come with my territory. The forensic pathologist did not think this was an accidental slip, however. She said, if you put a loaded gun to your head to find out what it is like to die, we call that a suicide. Philip Cato for Esquire comments, As one veteran newsman told me in a comment that was pure Chicago in its fusion of Midwestern pragmatism and big city cynicism, if he was practising, he should have done it on the ground floor. There was also the fact, pointed out by the coroner, that Izzy had straddled the window ledge tightly for some time. His inner thighs had deep bruising, and Dr Calico determined that this was because Izzy had been hesitating, trying to build up the courage to jump off and let the rope strangle him. Or could his hesitation have been because he was trying very hard to be very careful, but had totally underestimated the danger he was putting himself in and had slipped? Well, the coroner also found that Izzy had antidepressants in his system. He'd been seeing a therapist for depression. Had the antidepressants numbed him and clouded his ability to make rational, clear decisions and to weigh up peril logically? Or had the antidepressants exacerbated his depression, as can happen with pharmaceuticals? Or had his own childhood trauma that had morphed into him becoming an abuser himself driven him to despair so deep that the dark shadows had engulfed him? His older sister told Chicago Reader in April 94, prior to his death, Guy was a human punching bag, a very battered child, physically and emotionally. My grandmother hated him because he looked like our father and we lived with her when our dad was in jail. She would use any excuse to beat Guy up or call him the most disgusting names. There is also one other piece of very important evidence that would surely seem to explain the state of Izzy's mind at the time of his death. On the night of his death, according to Fountain of the Washington Post, Izzy had made a phone call to one of his sons at the downtown motel, where he'd relocated his family. He told his son that he had not been able to get into his office because he had left his keys behind. He asked his son to meet him in the hotel lobby with a set of keys. The young man obeyed and went down to the lobby. There he met his father, who hugged him and told him, No matter what happens, I love you. Then Izzy left and went to his office. Here's the thing, says Fountaine. Police sources say that the phone call to the hotel summoning his son came from inside room 1418, Izzy's office. He'd not forgotten his keys at all. He had called his son, it would appear, to say a final goodbye. Yet his close friends did not believe Izzy had killed himself. A lawyer and fellow crime writer, close friend Andrew Boschas, told The Independent, you don't wrap yourself in a Kevlar vest and carry a handgun if you're relaxed about the environment around you. He was completely sane and dedicated to his craft, which happened to mean digging up dirt. While Barbara Schneider, Izzy's agent, told The Independent, Izzy had phoned her on Friday, December the 5th, two days before his body was found. Schneider expected it, his new book, to establish Izzy as one of the world's top crime writers. Major Hollywood studios had already approached her about the movie rights. After years of modest success, Izzy was ready for the big time. 
when he phoned, she expected Izzy wanted to talk about the upcoming book tour, but instead, she said, he wanted to talk about death threats. He was so upset, he finished up saying he would not survive the weekend. He said he expected to be killed by Sunday. He asked me to look after his wife and children. Vash said he loved his family, adored them. He had a major book coming out in the spring. One of Guy's greatest joys would have been to pick up the Chicago bestseller list and see his name on it. I can't see him killing himself just before that was due to happen. Guy was also terrified of heights. He was not the kind of guy to jump from a high building. Which of course contradicts the other version that he jumped out of planes to overcome his fear. Izzy's agent, Deborah Schneider, told The Independent that the threatening note was pushed under the door of Izzy's office and it said that he would be soon swinging from a lamppost. The Washington Post reported the Chicago police lieutenant and mystery writer Hugh Holton, president of the Midwest chapter of the Mystery Writers of America, said, If it was a fiction plot, it couldn't be any more bizarre. He didn't strike me as the type to commit suicide. His agent Snyder told the Washington Post, The whole thing is more mysterious with the passing of time, not less. And homicide cop friend Rice commented, He shunned publicity, didn't like doing interviews or book signings. And now he's going to ask strangers to bear witness to this death? But then how do we discount him phoning his son on the pretext that he'd left his keys at home? If you're going to commit suicide, why would you wear a bulletproof vest? Perhaps the most cryptic aspect of it all is that his neck was not broken. Certainly, he wasn't thrown out of the window, for that would have broken his neck. Several years before Izzy's death, author John Williams met with Izzy over a number of days to interview him for a chapter in his book, Into the Badlands, about crime writers. He describes Izzy as a solidly built six-footish type with workout muscles that likes to box. Interestingly, Izzy had told Williams, I made my opinions on the mob clear on the first four books. I paid a price for that. I get phone calls. I have to change my number every few months. I just moved house. This car's registered to a P.O. box. My driver's licence relates to a different address. Perhaps the militia were not the only enemies he had. The Chicago Reader describes a Polaroid photo of Izzy pinned to the wall in his office. He's wearing a sleeveless undershirt in the picture. His face is a mask of bruises. Izzy said last February that happened. It's the price of doing business. Occupational hazards. His book, Bad Guys, features the character Jim Marino, a Chicago PD detective who infiltrated the Mafia. How far did Izzy go in the research for his books? Did he step on the toes of mobsters? But wouldn't they have just shot him and buried his body? Or would a staged suicide have created less heat? In 1989, seven years before his death, the Tribune wrote, Since Al Capone, the Chicago crime syndicate has always been viewed by national bosses as what Eugene Izzy calls the retarded brotherhood of the mob. And Izzy's wise guys are the real thing. Stupid, cold and deadly. Izzy has parlayed this crowd into four lean, mean and demonically funny thrillers since 87. Well, laughing at the mob takes one brave and perhaps very reckless man. Another possibility, as outrageous as it sounds, and at this late date it can't be proven, but in 2007 a person on a forum wrote about the Chicago activist Sherman Skolnick, who brought down two Chicago judges for corruption and who apparently contended that blame for Izzy's death is being shoved in the direction of the militias to cover up what is actually a Chicago police murder squad. The activist, Mr Skolnick, is now deceased, but he had decades of experience in researching matters of institutional corruption, 
and says, There is a group of white policemen in the Chicago PD who routinely murder outspoken people. Izzy was, according to Skolnick, an expert on police corruption, racial matters and murder squads. It's a rather extreme allegation, although an obituary article written by staff writer Josh Noel of the Chicago Tribune after Skolnick's death says Skolnick was certainly not always wrong, though many brushed him off. And mocked for being so far out of the mainstream, Skolnick bristled at being called a conspiracy theorist, especially when he had successes that included driving two members of the Illinois Supreme Court to resign. He'd founded the Citizens Committee to clean up the courts. Paralysed from the waist down after contracting polio at the age of six, Skolnick became well known in Chicago, and the Tribune called him something of a heroic figure. It's in this Tribune article that we learn that Skolnick used to relay his anti-corruption activist journalism by phone messages. This is when he decided to cut out the press and bring the news straight to the people. Skolnick began with Hotline News in the early 70s, a recorded news phone message he updated from his home. Skolnick's alleged recorded message regarding Eugene Izzy was the murder mystery writer had uncovered data showing there was a Chicago police murder squad that went around killing political activists. Of course, the phone message Skolnick recorded and the substance of it can no longer be verified now. I did find a report in 2013 from the University of Chicago Department of Political Science entitled Anti-Corruption Report which says five decades of news reports reveals that since 1960, a total of 295 Chicago police officers have been convicted of serious crimes such as drug dealings, beatings, destroying evidence, theft and murder, and protecting mobsters. Was Skolnick simply a conspiracy theorist? Or was he right about Izzy? Although Izzy's agent and some of his friends said Izzy was excited about his relaunch, did he feel he was never going to make it big in the way he wanted? After the humiliation of his last book, Tribal Secrets, had flopped, a personal book largely mirroring his own life, did his hopes die with it too? When Williams has spent days with him interviewing him before the failure, we learn that for Izzy, his books were not just cheap entertainment. He wanted to change things with his writing. He wanted to bring social reform. He told Williams that when he met up with a friend from the old neighbourhood, they could count 30 people they'd known who'd either died of drugs or been murdered including Izzy's best friend during his teen years. He said, that's what taught me not to make friends. I don't believe the big drug problem is drugs. If we could just stop the abuse of children, I'd tell you 70% of crime would stop. He hoped his books could reach people. He said, there's even a possibility I could make a difference. When I reach my potential, somebody might read that and say, hey, this is the way it really is. I was in fourth grade looking around and thought, how come nobody else has got a black eye, a broken leg? Then it dawned on me, other people aren't beating their kids. But Izzy's most vulnerable book, his self-autobiographical book, the one with the big social message, was rejected by all the respected publishing influencers as being rubbish, and it was consigned to the bargain bin, and Izzy was stopped from writing. Did he ever really get over this? Would he ever be taken seriously? The influencers have rejected him already, and on his trips to Hollywood, when his books were being made into movies, he told Williams how depressed he was in that vacuous environment. He said it's enough to turn your stomach when explaining why his host couldn't understand when he turned down the office of a prostitute, then two. He said I was miserable, always thinking about suicide. This was not the first time he spoke of thoughts of suicide. He also mentions it when, after beating his wife for the last time and her leaving with children, he was forced to live in the toilet of a local barber who took pity on him. 
The Tribune reported that he once explained how he felt during that time. He said I would stare longingly at the stroked razor blade on the back shelf, nestled there between the electric equipment and the combs. Their sharpness appealed to me, the light glinting off them was my salvation. The Chicago reader in April 94, just before his death, wrote, He has declined all recent requests for interview and says this may be his last one. He allowed his publisher to set up only three signings for his latest hardcover book. He doesn't like to talk about what he does now or how he does it. Why would a person who now shunned the limelight seem content to die in so public a way? A way that would hit the headlines across his beloved city and indeed the nation. Why wouldn't he have shot himself to ensure he would be found more privately and not in such a macabre spectacle? Izzy was a complex, damaged man. Did he kill himself? Or was he rehearsing a scene? Or was he killed by an elusive and very skilled hitman? John Fontaine of the Washington Post says, Given the length of his fall, why wasn't his neck broken? Could he have been slowly lowered down by a sadistic killer? What really caused Izzy's death? Was he killed by the militia or by mobsters, the mafia or a cop murder squad? Did he slip or was it a spectacular suicide? <laughs>